Welcome to you, to the YouTube family, hello, to the um, Facebook family, hello, to the people joining us via Instagram, welcome, welcome to Hebrews chapter 6 of Thrive. In the past, um, before we go ahead, let's share a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We, your children, have come to your table today to eat from your word. We know that your word is alive and is life, therefore gives life. We know that it is light and it is like a sword with dub double edges, with sharp edges on both sides that can tear into anything that can rightly divide. So we ask today that in the name of Jesus, every wrong misconception, every faulty thought, every wrong idea, everything that lifts itself against the knowledge of God, we ask that you tear them down completely so that your word will come into our hearts, that your word becomes life and light to us so that your name will be glorified forever and ever. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen. So let's, you know, come into the word of God together. We're trusting God today that as you hear this word, it becomes life and light to you in the mighty name of Jesus. So I was about to say just before we started praying that in the past six weeks, we have been digging really deep into the book of Hebrews, um, a book that was written to letters, a set of letters written to a group of Christians who were starting to falter because of their deep Jewish traditions. It was starting to contradict with the word of God. And so the writer, Paul, Apollos, the writer, um, was talking to them to try and shake them out of what they were in and pointing them to the hope that was in Christ. So I want to, at this juncture, I want to thank all the teachers that have taken us from Hebrews 1 till now. God bless you all. You know, your teaching has been clear, very impactful, you know, and has caused life change. So, you know, we thank you very much and we pray that the hand of God continues to be upon you in the mighty name of Jesus um, if you've just joined us today, I want to ask that you please go on YouTube or um, on the um, podcasts to, to stream the past messages. It's because they're all joined up. Hebrews 1 to 5 will allow Hebrews 6 make sense to you. So please, in your spare time, it's not, it's not very long. Just listen to all these messages so that we can have a joined up discussion and God will bless you as we go ahead. By the way, if this is your first time of joining God's favorite house, hello, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, we hope you join us on Sunday where we're able to welcome you properly. So now back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5 is extremely important to Hebrews 6 because in Hebrews 5, it sets up the message that Hebrews 6 takes forward. Um, in Hebrews 5, we learned that it really lays a case to justify the priesthood of Jesus and why it is a, indeed superior, you know, it's a higher priesthood. It teaches us that every priest is usually chosen, you know, and that God the Father 
not only declared Jesus to be his son, he declared him to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that is extremely important. Um, not all the other priests, none of the other priests got this privilege. Aaron wasn't called a priest under the order, uh, you know, in the order of Melchizedek. Neither was he called a son of God. We also learned that a priest in the first half of um, chapter five, we also learned that um, a priest should be someone of like passions. So you can empathize, you know, when naughty people do naughty things, a priest being of like passion can understand as he's carrying the sacrifices, carrying his own first, but also carrying those sacrifices. Chapter five shows us that Jesus was of like passion because we see him offering prayers. We see him pleading, plus tears, Seth, you know, as he was calling to the one, God the Father, that could save him from death. We also see that he overcame and he became the perfect high priest. As Jesus overcame, so will we all overcome in the mighty name of Jesus. Then we get to the second part of chapter five, which leads into our topic of today, maturity. You kind of sense some frustration from the writer, the frustration of a, of, um, a teacher that has been telling a student the same thing over and over and over again. You know, you sense that frustration of someone that has invested a lot in teaching, you know, basic principles, and it looks as if it's not yielding a result that is commensurate to the investment of teaching that has been put in there. It's against that backdrop that we come into chapter six. So now we're in chapter six, the topic of today, and I'm going to be reading the 20 verses of chapter six um, from the NLT version. I will read, please follow along. May God bless the hearing, the reading and hearing of his, of his word. Amen. So it starts by saying, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who, were, who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears the good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Dear friends, even though we were talking this way, we really do not believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. 
for God is not unjust. It will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you've shown him your how you've shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who have gone to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your de descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These are two things. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the cotton into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. As we do at Thrive, we are now going to go deeper into all this scripture and tie everything um, together. So starting from verse 1, as I reflect upon verse 1, um, I, I think of an analogy that I've heard before. And that analogy says, when we're in kindergarten, we're taught um, the alphabet and we're taught phonetics for a reason. So we go through the A for apple, B for ball, C for cat, and all the other things that you all know. And I hope some of you are singing the alphabet song right now. But then we're also taught how to pronounce words. So they will not tell us that CH is pronounced as CH, and then the other phonetic sounds that we're taught when we're in kindergarten. But it's for a reason. The teachers are not just singing A for, they're not just teaching us A for Apple because they want us to sing a song, even though when we're children, that's why, that's the only reason we can think about. And they're not just teaching us phonetics just because they want to pronounce words in a certain way. They're doing all that because it's supposed to lead us to something else. Suddenly, as we grow older, with the familiarity of the A for Apple and with the familiarity of the phonetics, we're suddenly able to read. And as we go from primary school onwards, we're able to read, you know, bigger books, more complex books until, you know, by the grace of God, some of us even write books for others to read. So there is a progression. You learn certain things because you're supposed to use it for certain things. Now imagine 
Imagine for a second that we're in an educational system where there are no exams. All you have to do is take your course content and then you go to the next class. So no exams, no tests. And there's a certain individual that from kindergarten has learned the A for Apple, knows the A for Apple, knows the phonetics, gets into primary school, is given the course content primary one to six, goes to secondary school, goes to university, and is in a PhD class. And that's the first time this person is going to get an exam. And this person is asked, asked a question, please read what is in front of you. And the person is, all the person is saying is A for apple, B for ball. Because the person never matured and used the precept to learn the next precept. Can you imagine how frustrating that will be for the people in their class or even for the PhD professor? That is a kind of frustration you almost see expressed. You know, when we start with chapter one, it's almost as if, why are we going back to the basics? You people, like we hear from chapter um, five, should be teachers by now. And as we read through um, Hebrews, I think we should put that at the back of our mind that they're not where they're supposed to be right now. Verses two to three then states examples of these fundamentals. We see the fundamentals that are, you know, exposed there, repentance, you know, and trusting only Jesus can save us from our, our sins and not our works. We see fundamentals like baptism, laying off of hands, resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment. These things are supposed to be basic to these Hebrews who have been taught for an extended period about these things. They're getting almost first-hand experience, at least second-hand experience about these things. But it seemed as if like that um, PhD student who was still doing A for Apple, they seemed to be stuck in the rudiments and not using the rudiments to get better knowledge. When we get to verses four to six, it talks about apostasy. And we're going to spend some time here because it raises some contentious, at least one contentious question. You know, it raises the question, is it possible that God that does not lie said in his word in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 4, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, the Bible in NLT says that this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So we can take it from here that God wants everyone to be saved. And we know it is true because he sent his only begotten son to come and die for our sins so that we can get salvation. Is it possible that this God who has done these two things will see a set of people and say that they cannot be saved? Is it possible? Does that go against the grain of the very um, principle of Jesus coming to die for all of us, for all our sins, so that all of us can be saved? Is it not even a scandalous thought to think that God will say something and will not achieve what he has said? But to answer that question, um, we need to first understand what apostasy means because that those verses is talking about people that knew God 
and then pulled back. People that have enjoyed, that have heard from the Holy Spirit, that have enjoyed communion with the Holy Spirit, that you know have seen the works of God, that have seen that have seen God in real technicolor. They've seen miracles. They've seen people saved. They've seen life changed. And these people then go back and say that there is no God. That is described as apostasy. And is um, reading the dictionary um, translation or description, it says apostasy is a noun that, that describes the abandonment or renunciation of a religious or, or political belief or principle. So I say, with, with the definition of apostasy that we have right now and the description of people in verses four to six that we can describe to be in that state. So I ask you, wouldn't it be super difficult to bring to repentance people that have led other people to Christ and have seen the power of God change their lives, yet come turn back and say, there is no Christ. Would it not be almost impossible or impossible, as the writer says, to, to, to talk to someone that has experienced the, the move of the Holy Spirit, has heard the Holy Spirit, has seen visions, has, um, has seen the word, of Lord, Lord, the word of God come to life in their mouth, in their hands. People that have been Jim Jim, as we would say, very spiritual, and that it's not just spiritual by mouth only, really walking in the revelation of Christ, and then suddenly pull back and say, God does not exist. Will it not be impossible for that to happen? Because for you to come into repentance, you have to believe that there is a God, and that, that God is the only one that can save you, that your works are. Of no, of no relevance really well um, and that it is only the salvation of this God that you are not that you need for you to make heaven if you don't believe in that God in the first place if you don't believe that he has a power to save if you don't believe that he's willing to save if you don't believe that he's good enough to lay down if you no longer believe let me actually put it that way, because this is not a matter of non-belief. It's a matter of going back. If you no longer believe all those things, despite what you have seen, how then is it possible for you to come back into repentance? So for me, this part was extremely important because sometimes you think mm, it's a little bit harsh to say some people can never be brought to repentance. Why then did Jesus die? But if you think about it through um, this lens that I had to put on it to fully understand it. I hope he explains and expresses why the writer said so and he's not just been harsh. I also want to, um, with, the, with the word of God, you know, talk about other instances very quickly of people that can never be saved, you know, and if we look into Luke 18, 9 to 12, uh, read that quickly. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank God that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he 
beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Why is this story important at this juncture of Hebrews? Um, why am I bringing the story in at this juncture of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6? It's because it's easy for us to say it is only the people that have become apostates that will never be saved. You know, and it, it gives us some kind of false, will never be brought back to repentance. And it gives us, you know, some kind of false sense of security. Yes, that statement is true, but there are other things for us to watch out for as well. You know, we should watch out for not trusting in ourselves. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 gives us a reference for that because you can't trust in God and trust in yourself at the same time. And for faith to be saved, we need to trust in God. It's important for us not to be self-righteous. We see that clearly in the story we've just read. I mean, he was praying and talking and contrasting himself to other people. When we come to Jesus, we, we're sinners, period. We should focus on our own sin and not the fact that we're better than other sinners. You know, it's interesting. It's easy for us to sit down here and, you know, say, how could he? How could the Pharisee talk like that? But we think it. When we think we're better than other people, Watch it. When you think, oh, because of certain things that you have done, you fasted, you've done this or whatever, your own is better than other people that are sinners like the tax collectors. Let's watch it. Um, those that will not believe, those, those ones too will find it difficult to come into repentance. You know, Bible says that we should believe with our mouth, confess with our tongue. And then in Acts 19.9, it speaks of people that even though they heard the truth, they refuse to believe. Those people, even though they're not apostates, because it wasn't as if they believed before and they renounced it, they never believed. Those ones too, it will be difficult for them to find repentance. Also, another example is people that proudly justify themselves and their actions. You know, you're faced with the word of God. You're faced with, you know, maybe God speaks through someone or you're watching a movie and you just see that, you know, that's relevant to you. Or you're reading a book or you're even reading scripture. Or the Holy Spirit drops something in your heart. And you are justifying yourself and your actions. You know, what that does is that it creates a scenario where you don't quickly come into repentance. Because you kind of think, I'm right. There's a reason for me to have done what I, I, I have done. And I say this, you know, you know, being fully aware that I fall in, in, in that category as most of us all do. It's, it's just a lens that we should quickly pull ourselves back from and, you know, say, you know what? Sin is sin. It's not about me. Yes, I might be justified, you know, but when the Holy Spirit calls my attention to it, repent and do better. This is not saying that we should not call other people's attention to things that are not right. Not at all. I'm just saying that we're just saying that, you know, don't justify your own actions via the lens of other people's actions. You know, I want to pause at this time and give um, like a scenario, something that when I got to this part, I was smiling. I actually was laughing at myself. Um, 
Back in secondary school, in music class, the only instrument I can play by, play, by the way, is the recorder, which is not really an instrument, really, when you think about it. But it does play music. And the only song I think I can still play on a recorder is this particular song that the Holy Spirit brought into my mind when I was, I wasn't really praying. I was kind of talking to him, but I was very upset with someone, you know? And I was kind of reporting the person without actively reporting the person, if you get what I mean. You, you know it because you do it as well. Um, my voice is very croaky right now, but I'm going to sing this song. So imagine me in the quietness of my, wherever I was, thinking about this and being angry with this person and reporting the person because really the person had done many things wrong, you know, to me, you know, and then I, I heard the Holy Spirit bring this song back and I, I honestly have not sung this song. I don't, be, I don't believe I have sung this song since secondary school. The song says, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my father, not my mother, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Now, that's the song um, for, for all my life, I've always believed that, um, I've always seen the song from a particular context. And I'm sure I was right. That context more, more like is like, you're saying to God, focus on me. I'm the one that needs attention, you know? Focus on me. I'm the one that needs you to answer my prayer, you know, or in need of prayer. That's how I've always understood the song. But in the context of where the Holy Spirit brought this song to my heart, I have no doubt that this is actually what it was saying. The Holy Spirit was saying to me, I have me focus on your own actions too. You're upset with this person and reporting this person. You self get wahala. You need prayers. And it was humbling. In this context, it was humbling. And I hope that when you're justifying that action, because it happens to me now, that when the, at least because it's really recent, this encounter happened this year, so it's really recent. When I'm thinking and upset with um, someone, I'm probably reporting them to God, I do not justify, I try not, I try not to justify my own actions. You know, I try to seek repentance because guess what? It's me in the need of prayer, not that person. Now, before we run out of time, let me quickly head to the other verses. Verses 7 to 8 is yet another analogy showing frustration, you know, um, of wasted efforts. He's using the analogy of a farmer. The rain that comes into the ground, if there's good crop, yes, the farmer is happy. If there's bad crop, what will happen? If the, the ground brings up thorns and thistles, how they will be destroyed. So again, it's an analogy of investment of the word, the returns that are supposed to come out of it, and the terrible consequences when those returns do not come. Then we get to verses 9 to 12. And here is a perfect illustration of that um, African proverb that says, when you scold a child with one hand, you draw that child closer with the other hand. It, this, verses 9 to 12, actually typify this. 
Because what we see is a change in communication. Whereas the first verse 1 to 8 is almost as if it's an admonition, he's berating them, he's pushing them, he's challenging them. When we get to verses 8 and 9 to 12, we suddenly see affirmation, we see reassurance, we see a message of hope. And that is so comforting to me and I hope it's comforting to all of, all of us. You know, the Bible starts saying, the writer starts saying, you are not apostates. You are meant for better things. The work you have done in the past is not in vain. It cannot save you. You shouldn't put your trust in it, you know, because, because you know, we should put our trust in God. But your work is not in vain. It is not useless. God sees what you are doing to help other believers. The message becomes, there's a way out for you not to become spiritually dull. If we bring it to our daily lives, let's just take it out of the Bible right now and bring it to our daily lives. This sandwich method of giving feedback is perhaps what we should adopt. And I'm talking to myself. This method, you know, speaks truth in love, speaks truth to power. People like my personality, I like being blunt. I like it, you know, to get blunt feedback. But it goes beyond that. It says that speak the truth in love, speak the truth to power, but recognize that apart from people who have by themselves designated the role of second in command to the devil, to themselves, apart from those ones and those people do exist, there is good, at least some good in everyone else. So when you give that feedback, which is probably maybe hard, it's not, it's not always supposed to be hard, but which is truthful and blunt to help the person correct behavior, think of the good, think of hope, think of a message that doesn't leave the person feeling, it's, well, woe is me, there's no point, I can't improve. Because that is what you see the writer doing here. It's sandwiching um, um, a message of hope, you know, with the message that was blunt and was needed. Again, this reminds me of another African proverb. I'm going to translate it. It might not be the best translation. Bear with me, but you'll get the gist. It says, no matter how bad it is, there's always a little remnant in the share butter container, enough to oil the skin, the body of a baby. There will always be one good thing of hope, a good message of hope that you can use to sandwich a message that is rightfully true. It is true. It is right for you to deliver it so that the psyche of the person is not completely broken. We move. So as we end chapter 12, I want us to pay attention to what it says about following the example of those who are going to inherit the promises because of faith and endurance. It's extremely important that we pay attention to it because the next set of verses is based on that premise, on that principle. It says we should, I'm reading directly from the Bible, instead, it's 12b really, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Even if you haven't read verse 13, if you're familiar with the scripture, you will know that Abraham's example 
will come next because he fits that picture. The topic of um, the topics of God's promise, the difference between a promise and an oath, the fact that both the promise and oath in this case are backed by the integrity and the authority of a God that cannot lie, the importance of waiting patiently, the fact that we have a hope that cannot be cut off is the message that resonates in the next five verses. I particularly like what scripture says in verse 16. It says, let me read it. Um, Again, I'm still in NLT. It says, now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that um, oath is binding. God, 17, God has also, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who receive the promise could be perfectly sure that he will never change his mind. Let us think of who gave us this promissory note, whose bond it is that has been issued to us. The God of the heavens and earth, the one who says it and immediately it happens, the commander of the host of heaven, the one that has to swear by himself because there's nobody greater than him, there's nobody higher than him. The one that, what he says, he has the integrity to make it come true. Is the one that gave this promise. And that is such a comforting, truly fulfilling, you know, statement or knowledge. So I want you to bask in that part. You know, all these verses are important. But verse 16 reminds us of who it is that we're talking about. The pedigree of the God that we're talking about, and why the fact that he gave us both an oath and a promise is extremely important. Amen. Take it to the bank. If this God, this God that I have just described, gives you an oath, even only a promise, you can take it to the bank. Talk less of an oath and a promise. Bank it. Verses 19 to 20. Now tell us about a curtain that leads into an inner sanctuary talks about a higher level not only is a higher is it a higher level it is a higher level that jesus has gone into already and it is and he is waiting for us to come into that inner sanctuary let me read it out um verses 19 to 20. this hope the hope, the hope we're still talking about, is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. God has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So not only is this hope important, we see that this hope and the patience required to wait for this hope to... Before I go ahead, I'm actually going to backtrack to verse 14. And the reason why I want to do that is to show the, the response, the attitude, the posture, um, scripture, the writer, God himself expects us to take regarding this hope and promise. 
and that and that's why the story of Abraham was used because Abraham displayed a certain posture that got him the result that he was waiting for. His posture was so right that, you know, God made a promise to him about certainly blessing him and multiplying his descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. There is a patient waiting that needs to follow a promise that has been released. This is relevant to all the promises that are already in the scripture and are general to all of us, but might be made specific to us because the Holy Spirit is specifying it, is knocking on it specific to our lives. But it's also relevant for the promises that he tells you in your quiet moment. To those of you that he has promised to make governors of nations, be patient, continue doing what you're doing, continue trusting, continue believing, continue walking, it will happen. To those of you that he has said, you will not be alone. It will put you into families of your own. It will happen. Abraham waited patiently, and this is the confidence that we know that when we pray according to his will, and I add to his promise, it will happen. And there are many, many other such promises that he has given to a lot of us that we need to remember the posture of Abraham here and to apply the po that same posture so that we will see it because the God that gave us that check cannot lie. Amen. Now back to 19, talking about 19b, talking about the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. I know I want to go into the inner sanctuary of God. I want to be part of his inner caucus, his council. It's said here, if we read what, what is said here, it says, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us. This hope leads us into this inner chamber that we all want to be part of. You know, the inner chamber is such that there's nothing that he'll want to do that he'll keep from you. He will tell you. He will inform you. That is that is that should be the aspiration of all of us with our relationship with, with God. More importantly, it says Jesus has gone in there already and is waiting for us. My brother, my sister, Ayobami, everyone listening, Jesus is there and he expects you to join him there. He's already waiting for you. He's waiting for me. He's waiting for all of us in this inner chamber of God, in the presence of God. It ends with going back to the point that Jesus is an eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's in Hebrews that many times, I don't know, I think maybe he said that it's, it's six times that the order of Melchizedek is mentioned in Hebrews. It's as if a point is being made. Certainly, we've heard it twice in um, chapter 6, I believe, and definitely we, we heard about it in chapter 5. You know, so clearly there's a point that is being made here. And it's, I'll share my thoughts about it. Um, hopefully when Papi joins, I'll have a question for him around there. But this is what I believe. I believe that Paul was facing a people that even though they knew God and they'd seen all this, they were, 
the Jewish traditions and how they were brought up, you know, depended if, you know, if you listen to Pharisees or Sadducees, you know, some of them believed that was that there's resurrection, Sadducees, um, while some of them don't believe that there is resurrection. Now, if you are brought up in that kind of tradition and you hear from Paul or Apollos or any of the people that Jesus died and rose again, you're like, um, I believe you, but from when I was a child, I was taught that there is no resurrection. Um, if you're a Jew, every Jew knew before Jesus that for you to be a priest, you had to come from a certain lineage. You had to come from the lineage. You had to be a Levite for you to be a priest. But Jesus wasn't from that lineage yet. The message, we know that he's the high priest. And it needed Paul or Apollos or whoever the writer was needed to get them to realize that. Don't get it twisted. Don't let tradition confuse you. He is the high priest. Not only is he a high priest, he's the eternal high priest. And he had to use the story, the, the knowledge of the order of Melchizedek, who the Bible had spoken to, I believe it was in Psalm 110, verse 4. I'm trying to bring it up here. I think it's Psalm 110, verse 4, when it says you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It was every time it tied in Jesus to the order of Melchizedek, which is absolutely true, by the way, it was trying to let them see clearly, paint a clear picture to them that this high priest that we're talking about, this Jesus that we're talking about, is not a priest like the other priest. He's an eternal high priest. That was the first time that a high priest will be eternal. <clears throat> out of the order of Melchizedek. And not only that, even though he did not belong to the Levite, he's not a Levite, he's not from the family of Aaron, but he belongs to the priest that was there before Aaron was born. The priest that was introduced to us in Genesis, the priest that Abraham himself paid tithes to. Therefore, you know, um, ensuring or trying to paint the picture of the legitimacy of the priesthood of Jesus. So um, that is where we are right now. The first, the only 20 verses in the book of Hebrews chapter 6, you know, and it's, it, for, it's, it, it's, for me, it was a huge learning experience, especially after I've heard all our teachers and papi teachers from chapter one to five, there were lots of things I could draw parallel to from the Hebrews that were being spoken to and to us. Because many a times there are things that we see that are done, that are traditional or, and by traditional, I'm not really talking about traditional religion. I'm just talking about things that we're used to, you know, that have been done a certain way that contests with the knowledge of um, what we know, what the Bible is telling us to do. And what if we're going to learn from the experience of the Hebrews, the Bible is saying, choose the one that the Bible is telling you to do. Choose the one that Jesus is telling you to do. Tradition, put it, one, put it aside. The second thing here is the imperative for maturity. 
for the whole, the half of um, chapter five and half of chapter six speak maturity. You should know better. You should do better. Move on from the basic principles. Move to the higher level. Move to the higher level. And again, that imperative is, is, is something that I hope that you know, this today leaves you with. That we all have a responsibility for maturity. We shouldn't be like that PhD student who is still doing A is for Apple, B is for Bo. Because it will be it is a waste of all the effort, of all the investment that has been put into us. Now, I know it's not easy. I know that we're all in this ship together. And I can only pray, and I pray today, that God will help us, that we will move from level higher to higher, higher levels in him, in the mighty name of Jesus, that today we, re we, receive, we receive the power to do what we have been taught so that we can also be known as mature Christians and be able to teach others, like Paul said in chapter five, you should be professors by now, kind of what he was saying. Um, another message um, here, you know, that I learned and I, that I hope I was able to pass across is how important it is for the writer to prove that this high priest was a high priest like no other. There are many verses in these 20 verses dedicated to showing he didn't choose himself. God called him son, then chose him to be a high priest, an eternal high priest. He contrasts, the writer contrasts that with the regular high priest that we've been introduced to throughout the Bible, in the likes of Aaron, etc., showing that this is a high priest like no other. It's a superior priesthood. Then it ends with, again, calling that back into our minds to say this Jesus that is waiting for us in the inner chamber this Jesus that died for us to for us to leave he is the eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek um, also what I hope a message that we learned from here and I hope you know I left I left all of us with I was able to explain properly is how to do almost a sandwich method. It's not called the sandwich method here, but speak the truth. When Paul was speaking the truth, he did not hold anything back. He was using imagery. He was, he was using words, you know. He was using analogies. He was comparing and contrasting so that the message would come across. But you see his heart. You see his heart because he then goes to the other side and begins to... Um, you know, um, affirm them and encourage them and point them to who they are. You know, and the message is, who are you affirming? Who am I affirming? Who are the people that I, I speak life to, that are encouraged by the words, you know, of God, of course, that, that I say to them. And it, it's almost like, you know, there's a charge to us there, even though it's not said explicitly, because again, that is a sign of maturity, Finally, promise, oath. Oath tells us, describes what an oath is. In this instance, the promise and oath guaranteed by one person, the one person that you would want to give you a promise and oath, the one person that cannot lie, his words cannot fall to the ground. It is so high that there's no one above him, such that he had to swear by his own name. I'm going to stop there and open this up 
for for questions as we're getting ready for you know those questions i'm welcoming papi i see papi is joining has joined us hello papi hi everybody how are you i'm good thank you for joining us um <laughs> i i have my i have my question um well well not that many questions but i have one question you know um, and it's around the the order of Mel Zedek and the fact, the importance why Paul keeps on or Apollos or whoever wrote this book keeps on talking about. We, we believe it's Apollos. We believe it's Apollos. <laughs> yes, and it's yes, we believe it's Apollos. That was what was said in chapter one, and it's important if you remember the black man. So if you're new here, you need to go and read, listen to our series of the black man. Um, yes. So Apollos, why Apollos, you know, kept on going back to Mel Melchizedek and, you know, linking the legitimacy of Jesus and the high priesthood or why it was different. I mean, I, I explained it the way I understood it, you know, but you're here now, please explain, you know, to us so that I can learn. The question is... The question is, why did he keep on talking? Because almost as if when you read Hebrews, especially 5 and 6, Apollos kept on going on. He is an eternal high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He is, an, you know, it's as if he's repeating it, but the repetition is not, scripture doesn't just use words. There is a, there is a reason, there's an importance. You know, why, why is it? Absolutely. So I think you did a good job with it, you know, um, I, I think you did a good job with the explanation. Um, um, I probably will just repeat what you have said. Um, but it doesn't end in chapter 6. By the time we get to chapter 7, he actually expatiated on, on Melchizedek and, and, um, and did say how he was is without father, without mother, without genealogy, no beginning, no ending and eternal. I'm sure we're going to see that when we look at when we look at chapter seven next week. And eternal um, um, priesthood. So uh, what he was saying that is, is pretty clear. Like you said, he's just establishing that. Look, yes, he was a priest because he needed to be close to the people and understand the feelings of the people. Right. But his priesthood is not, um, does not expire. His priesthood is not after the Levitical order. That the priest, his priesthood is after the Melchizedek order, if you will, the order of Melchizedek. So the superiority of that priesthood, one, the longevity of that priesthood. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and the um, the um, deity nature of the priesthood in the sense that it is there's no origin as far as the human lineage is concerned. Yeah. So so I mean that's 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 big. Uh, Melchizedek is an is 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 um someone that a lot of Christians have tried to explain. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't like I don't like um, explaining things outside of what the Bible says. So 
um, Melchizedek, some have said is pre-incarnate Christ and all that. It's not important. The important thing is Jesus was a priest after that order and it's a superior order to that of the Levites and Aaron starting the Levitical priesthood. Yes, so pretty much all you said, you know, which was sound. Well done. Thank you, Papi. Um, the, the second thing is more of uh, just sharing, you know, how I felt and I've always felt, you know, when I, when I get to that point where it says, you know, there's no redemption for a, a group of people. It's really, it's, it's harsh, you know, um, if it's not because, you know, of the teaching in God's favorite house and the teaching of Hebrews 1 to 5 till now, it's almost something that you don't want to, you know, say, ah, bad now. I mean, <laughs> how can you say there is no redemption? So, the, 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 oh, it's a tough one, you know, that kind of thing. And, and for me, so this is not so much so a question. It's just something that um, this brought to light why it is so. And it also brought to light other instances that it could be so, which is almost like a caution. So God is not lying when he says, I want to save everyone. That's why I sent my son. But even though he has given us that blank check, some people still won't cash it. And one of the sets of people are these people that have become apostate. How can you, because by the state, by, by the time you get to the stage of knowing God, him being real to you, and you suddenly say all those experiences are no longer real, it doesn't exist. What is the basis? How can you then be reached out to? Because the God himself that can save you, you don't belong to. You know, but apart from apostasy, other things, and I was just reflecting about other things that can cause, you know, this terrible negative cannot happen to anyone connected to GFH in any way, in Jesus' name, kind Amen. of state. You know, so um, for me, it was just something that I, I, I reflected on and I know you would have some more things to add to that. And I just wanted to, you know. Well, again, I think you did a good job there also, which is um, rather than try to deny what the scriptures are said clearly, which is what the approach some school of thought go by it, you know, try to excuse it out that the Bible doesn't really mean, you know. So don't say the Bible doesn't mean what the Bible has said in black and white. They actually, they, the Bible actually means it, you know. You know, but, you know, the explanation you gave um, saying that uh, from a logical standpoint, if you've, if you've done this, you've experienced that, you've been taken through this, then you now turn your back. The process of repentance is is almost impossible. In fact, the Bible says it's not possible because you, before they say A, you have said B, you already know where they are, where you think they are coming from, you know. Um, and another thing you said that is so powerful is that, you know, it means that the fact that you have tasted all that is still, you still have to be careful so that you don't jeopardize your faith. So the fact that you, you've, 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 you've tasted the power of that is to come, the fact that you have experienced the, the, the blood, the, the, the spirit of life and all that should actually keep you in a place of humility. In fact, one thing that 
we see clearly from Hebrews 6 is that it's the two signs of, human, of, of, of maturity. Mm. You know, maturity is not because I say I can see vision or I can dream dreams or I am spiritual or when I'm speaking in tongues, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is, that is not, I mean, I can't speak ill of it, but it's clearly not maturity. Maturity is not because I say I am more spiritual than you. No. Maturity, there are two signs of maturity. The first sign of maturity there is said clearly, the time you ought to be teachers. Mm. So fruitfulness is a major key of maturity. How do you know a girl is maturing? Or a boy is maturing? When they can reproduce, you say, ah, you are not a child anymore. If a man touches you, uh, something we, you know, <laughs> you know, that is a sign of maturity, fruitfulness, the capacity to bear fruit. So the time you ought to be teachers, the time you ought to be bearing spiritual fruit, fruit, you still have need to be fed like a baby. It's, it's an issue. One. Secondly, is humility. Is humility, and that is. When you look at this whole thing in, 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 in context and you know that you have to guard your heart, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, trusting and relying on God that, look, you have promised to keep me. I believe it. I love justice. I love mercy. I walk humbly with my God. At the end of the day, we'll all be singing hallelujah. <laughs> Let me Amen. See Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Thank you so much, Papi. Um, You're welcome. You know, thank you for even summarizing it into those two, 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 two signs. You know, because looking at it from that context again, you know, one is able to draw more and more and more from twenty verses. It just looks like twenty verses, but they're twenty deep verses. Okay, Absolutely. we're looking waiting for your questions it's okay if you don't have questions it just means that you know Papi was able to come here and clarify what uh, you, said. you talked it perfectly and it's so okay. clear there are no questions yeah it's okay for there not to be any questions but we always leave room for questions and you 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 hear us asking over and over again that's because the whole point of digging deep into the scripture of our midweek worship experience is to give an opportunity for you to hear, reflect, and then ask. You know, that's why it's different from a Sunday service. That's why it's set up like this. So, you know, no question is too, um, um, I don't know, not mature. It's okay, just ask it. We don't say your name anyway, so it doesn't matter. So you can send us the questions anonymously. It will be good to answer the questions. Um, iron sharpens iron. But if there are no questions today, all glory to God. We'll look forward to next week when we'll be doing... I have a question for you. Oh, Papi, don't. Don't ask me a question, Papi. <laughs> Go ahead, sir. <laughs> okay, so... Two questions, actually. You see, so, it's all your fault. Because you didn't ask me a question, <laughs> Papi gets to ask me two questions. Okay, okay, Papi. Okay. <laughs> So, so the first would be um, you talked about the frustration of the teacher yeah. where you have um, 
taught and you know taught and labored and sweated and da 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 you know and you know and um you you have you experienced that and how, how do you how would you advise um teachers and and spiritual leaders not to give up what would what would you say okay that's a great question and it's you're flipping the question because i should actually be asking you this question <laughs> but 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 i'll try i'll say that um anyone that teaches in any capacity will experience that um especially when it comes to both in the circular world and even in christ because there will be people that you put a lot of investment in you're trying your best you know but nah, they're either listening to the message not even listening to it at all or they're not you know taking it important but what is more important here is in the concept of the faith I could say I've experienced it, but I would I'll rather answer this way. I've watched it happen to teachers ahead of me. I've, I've seen, you know, people that we started together that were, that were we've listened to this exactly the same message. We've, we've gotten exactly the same exposure. We, it's, it's the same word that has been preached to us. And then you see it, it's, a, it's like a class. You know, it is the same teacher that taught someone that got first class and the first that got you know, that did not get first class. Let me just put it that way. No disrespect. <laughs> All of us that didn't get first class, you know. But it, it, you, it's, it, and it, it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's very frustrating, especially for... Um, hmm, let me explain it this way. For some people, let's use learning. Let, let me make it broad. Some people have learning difficulties. So in, in, the, in education, some people might have like, um, dyslexia so the public cannot read properly what is on the screen and stuff like that you know so some people might have learning difficulties they're hampered by something but some people clearly do not have learning any learning difficulties and they just choose not to want to pass because they're not maybe motivated enough or maybe they're too proud to accept knowledge because in some cases there's some people they they've been taught there is a reason why God has put the person that is teaching you in that position and you in your position. He doesn't make mistakes. And he's teaching you, a person is teaching you and you are, you are, you are um, resisting that teaching because you think you know better. You know, <laughs> ah, no, this is the reason why. That's not the reason. You know, those five points that we learned, it's not really those five points. There should be six or seven. He didn't finish that story. <laughs> Or some people where that's not their problem. Um, their, their own problem is they're distracted because they're listening to too many messages at the same time. Huh. So they can't progress. Huh. I keep on, well, every time I reflect about all these letters, and you know when you go to Revelation, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, the letter huh. to the church in what's it called? Huh. Churches... The Holy Spirit in those times was writing letters to specific churches dealing with specific issues. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot learn from what was written to the church of Philadelphia. Mm. But if you're in the church of Philadelphia and what you're doing is listening to the church of Ephesus, the messages of the church of Ephesus, 99% of the time. Mm. And those messages, even though they sound very interesting or attractive, are not dealing with the issues the Holy Spirit 
is saying that is in this particular church is in your life growth will not mm. come you know so i mean gone a long way to explain this but just to just to say that what will a teacher do papi that is i'm going to flip the question to you what do you do when you experience this because <laughs> i see this happening in a quite a bit <laughs> you know how do you how do you handle this okay so um it's um it's pretty tough to I mean, handle yes i'd say yes um and um um so i i i liked the analogy or rather the example of the seven churches in revelations that you gave you know i i pretty much have not thought of it that way and that is so so apt which is you know to the church in Pegamos. Yeah. This is what the Spirit of God is saying. Which is why um, pastors wait on God to hear from God before they preach a message. It's so powerful. You know, and uh, if, 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 the, if people in uh, Philadelphia <laughs> dial into the church in Ephesus, what they are hearing will be correct. It will be the word of Christ. It will be, it will be accurate doctrine, but it will not lead to their own transformation. No. It won't. So spot on, you nailed it there. So what should the teacher do? The teacher should keep on teaching. <laughs> even though even though the student is PhD level and is still doing A for Apple, B for ball, and has not learned to read, the, even though the, uh, taught alphabet and phonetics, the, the teacher should keep on teaching. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's big. So I mean, I would I would spare you the second question. I would I would Thank ask. You. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Papi. Again, if you're joining us for the very first time, this is God's favorite house. And we're excited to have you join our midweek worship experience. We have two services on, on Sunday. You can pretty much connect with us on all the you know, popular channels, social media channels. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We are on YouTube. Mixalara, I think so. Yes, we're there. So, you know, connect with us and Come and, come and see what God is doing here. Join us and God will bless you. Um, no further questions, but I think Papi has done justice to the question answering part. I'm going to be handing over to Papi now to um, close the service, our closing prayer. Well done, I mean, I mean, amazing teaching. God bless you. In Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's close. Father, we honor you today. We adore you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be Amen. gracious unto you. Amen. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and Amen. give you peace. Amen. And so Amen. shall it be. Amen. In Jesus' mighty name, we have prayed. Amen. Amen. Okay, God's from your house, remember that this is our year of lifting and we are lifted. All the way! All the way. God bless you. Amen. 
thank you for listening to this. I want to encourage you to share this resource with your family and friends. God bless you. Oh,